Good morning to each of you. If you have a Bible, you can turn to 1 Samuel 15. Uh, There are some Bibles also in the backs of the pews if you need one. 1 Samuel 15. There's some handouts being handed out as well. When you get the handout, please don't make any guesses about how long the sermon is going to be based off of the handout. There's a lot more there than we are going to cover. Hopefully it'll make more sense later, so don't get scared. Um, the uh, We've had the treat of walking through 1 Samuel. We're now at 1 Samuel chapter 15. Um, I, I put on the very front of the hand out a, a general timeline for you, um, and uh, it, it it's a picture there you're probably pretty familiar with uh, if you've been part of the Equip Hour at all, but basically it, it shows um, Jesus on the far side of the timeline and then all the way to creation on the other, and if you back up 2,000 years before, I think we might have it on a slide, do we? We have that on slide. We may. Um, anyway, if you back up, here we go. So Jesus on the far side. If you back up uh, about four paces over, you're going to get to Abraham, um, and uh, and then 500 years past Abraham, you get to Moses. 500 years past Moses, you get to David, and that's where we are as we're talking about First Samuel. So uh, that's our that's our general timeline. A couple spots there in First Samuel that may be helpful. Um, one, in chapter 8, we get this um, in lieu of background. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. That's one. Um, so they come and they basically say, Hey, your sons aren't going to be able to pull this off, Samuel. We want, a na- uh, we want a king. And what do we want a king? We want a king like all the other nations. In chapter 10, we find out this king is going to be a guy by the name of Saul. Verse 16 says, And Saul said to his uncle, He, speaking of Samuel, told us plainly that the donkeys had been found. But about the matter of the kingdom, of which Samuel had spoken, he did not tell him anything. So here we find out about the character of this first king, in particular about his understanding of the ways of the kingdom of God. And then in 1 Samuel 13, just a few chapters prior to this, in verse 13 it says, And Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly, but now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And now we will look at 1 Samuel 15. Let me pray for us as we open. Father, for your word again, we thank you. The kindnesses represented in it are unbelievable. Just let us treasure it together. Let us treasure it by submitting to it even when it is hard even when it's really hard uh, like this text this week father 
bring to us humble hearts, hearts uh, that are willing to listen to your word and put ourselves underneath it to believe it. And Father, give us an understanding that is beyond us, an understanding that is afforded to us by the work of your spirit, the third person of the Trinity. But Father, we pray, we pray that you would show us the depths of our sin. Father, Saul is not exceptionally wicked. The scariest thing is he is incredibly normal. He's me. He's each of us. And so we need help. Like Saul needed help, so we need help. Incline our hearts towards Jesus Christ. We pray, Father, that Jesus Christ would be exalted as the ultimate, perfect King and Savior in our time together. We ask these things. Amen. I was not alive as this event happened in the early part of November of 1970, but I was alive for the 50th anniversary of the event in 2020. If I understand it correctly, in early November 1970, an 8-ton, you got that right, 16,000-pound, 45-foot sperm well washed up and died on the beach in Oregon. As the story is told by KATU news reporter Paul Lehman, working for the local news station at the time, he initially found the story interesting but not worthy of his camera crew. That is, until Mr. Lehman learned how the authorities planned on dealing with this rotting well carcass. When he heard that they were using dynamite, he changed his mind. He quickly organized a crew and headed to the scene. What happened next made Mr. Lehman's crew footage part of film history. The plan was to dynamite the carcass in hopes that, in hopes that it might blow the carcass into tiny pieces across the local beach, and then these tiny pieces would be feasted upon by all of the very happy birds and wildlife. That is not what happened. Lindman's crew set up their cameras a quarter of a mile away from the detonation site, assured that they were a safe distance away. Behind them were spectators and behind them their parked cars. The countdown began. Three, and this is all on video, YouTube, it's fabulous. Three, two, one. The, <laughs> the explosion was better than most Hollywood movies. But what everyone expected was going to happen is not what happened. Instead of giving small pieces for the birds to eat, they got massive, dreadfully dense pieces of whale flying through the air. Everyone said that the dead pieces of whale would not make it past a quarter of a mile away. They were wrong. The massive chunks of blubber flew much further. Lindman remembers pandemonium as people were yelling, run away, run away, covering their heads. And Oldsmobile had the entire roof collapse, <laughs> destroying the windshield and flattening the tires. Thankfully, there were no passengers on board. 
They so misjudged the blast radius that all of the folks watching, Lindman included, couldn't go out in public for weeks after this because they could not get the stench of dead well off of them, off of them eradicated from their hair. Um, as for the expected result of the bird buffet, well, there were no birds to be seen for weeks as they remained traumatized by what they saw. I love this. This is how Lindman signed off of his broadcast. As to, those, as to what those in charge will do the next time a whale washes up on the beach, no one seems to know. But all here today are agreed upon what they will not do. Sometimes we just don't know what will happen until we try. 1 Samuel 15 is not such a story. It's the exact opposite. In fact, the sadness and despair of the chapter is what we knew would happen, happened. We knew what to expect and we got what we expected. The people asked for a king. They wanted a king what? Just like the all other nations. And what happened is exactly what the biblical story would predict would happen. They got a king just like all the nations. Verse 1 and 2. And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. So about 450 years prior to the setting of 1 Samuel, so uh, 1 Samuel is right about that David mark, so we go about 400 years or so before then, you're going to get it right at the Moses mark. The Israelites are heading into the wilderness. They're heading out of Egypt. They are tired. They're hungry. They are weary from the exodus from Egypt. And they, they come upon the Amalekites. The Amalekites, they could have shown them mercy and help in their time of need. They did not do that. Far worse, they attacked them at a time of great vulnerability. These events are recorded in Exodus 17. Pastor Scott opened our service with those events. How God saved the people as Moses interceded for them by the aid of Aaron and her who were holding up his arms as God rescued the people from the attack of the Amalekites. But then as we go to the second telling of the law in Deuteronomy chapter 25, Moses also records for us this commentary on the event in verse 17 of chapter 25. He says, remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt, how he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail. Those who are lagging behind you, he did not fear God. God reminds the people of the ruthless acts of the Amalekites, reminding them of how they intentionally went after the weakest among them, showing their desire to afflict harm on any and all that they could come across, all of God's people. God explains that this wasn't just an attack on his people, but on God himself as he showed them no, as they showed no fear of God in their callous attack on the children of God, God explains that one day he will 
deal with the Amalekites in his providence. Verse 19 of Deuteronomy 25. Therefore, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all of your enemies around you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for all for an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. So God promised the people that a day would come when they would have their own land. They would they would have a land given and delivered by God. And in that land, they would have rest from their enemies, meaning that they would rule the land and they would not be in the land ruled by others. In that day, in that day, that's when God would bring ultimate judgment on the Amalekites. God would not forget And the people should never forget, says God. Well, chapter 15 of 1 Samuel is that day. 450 years later, God comes to bring judgment. See, the scriptures are amazing. No other book compares. Where else can you read of a leader laying out his plan before it happens and writing about it as if he's writing about it after it happens. The same level of certainty. But I promise you there is nowhere you will find a leader explaining his 450-year vision. That's exactly what he's given. God fulfills his promises 450 years after declaring them. That'll make your head spin. I get impatient with God for not fulfilling his promises in days and weeks. And he's counting in centuries. 450 years. That is 5,400 weeks. That is over 164,000 days. God is timeless. And yet so often... We hold time against him. Anyhow, today is the day of judgment in 1 Samuel 15 for the Malachites. God is making good on his promise. That is the reason behind what happens next. It's an important moment in Israel's history. God put himself on the record before Saul was born and before Saul's grandpa's grandpa's grandpa was born. Today is the day that God has chosen and he has chosen Saul to lead this crucial mission. At the end of verse one, Samuel tells Saul these words, words of deep foreshadowing. Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Verse three. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So today is the day of judgment and God lays out His directives. What happens next is a is brought about by the will of God to judge the evil acts that of those who acted merciless to his people. 
And yet the gravity of this charge, it is hard to swallow. Quite honestly, it is hard to swallow such a charge on any day of the week. But given the events of these last few days in the Middle East, I have greatly struggled with the command of God in this text this week. Quite honestly, the struggle has been a lot more like, seriously, we had to land on this text this week? (laughs) We've been dreadfully, dreadfully and rightfully horrified by various atrocities committed this week in the name of holy war. And I have been left repeatedly to ask, why, Father? this text this week just give it some space i don't know the answer to that question not made to and while we don't have time to give all of the necessary questions justice i do think um, that it is worth at least some time to consider how it is that the commands of god here are permissible don't misunderstand me god doesn't need my approval But my mind does need a way to categorize the differences between what God commanded to be completely carried out in 1 Samuel 15 and the horrifying acts of cruelty perpetrated in the recent days in Israel. So I'm going to pause for quick excursus here um, and, and try to answer the question of what is the difference between Islamic Jihad and God's commands to defeat groups of people in the Old Testament. So what are the differences between Islamic Jihad and God's commands uh, in the Old Testament? The three most relevant chapters in the Bible, there's three main ones of what God would, where we might call I'm going to call Yahweh war. That is where Yahweh is asking his people to go attack and destroy, completely destroy another group of people. There are three main chapters. 1 Samuel 15, that's ours. Joshua chapter 6, and then Joshua chapter 8. In Joshua chapter 6 and 8, God commands Joshua to go conquer the Canaanites as Joshua led the people into the promised land. Um, So the question before us is, what are the main differences between jihad and Yahweh war as depicted in the Old Testament? Well, uh, there I'm going to give you three. I've given you, I'm not covering all that's on your handout. I've given you a lot more on your handout. I've given you a full appendix with more text. Please feel free to look through those. First difference, whereas Islam calls upon jihad, to be used across space and time, the Bible never does such. Joshua 6 and 8 are the people coming into the promised land, a land that had been promised to them, catch this, for over 400 or four centuries prior. The time prescribed for this to happen was 400 years before it happened. You talk about prior planning. The same goes for our chapter. God had already already prescribed a special time for the war waged in 1 Samuel 15, some 400 years prior to that time. 
So the time is very specific, but also the place. Yahweh never allows Yahweh war outside of the promised land. Second, whereas Islam uses jihad as a way to proselytize, to spread Islam, the Bible never ever warrants it for such a reason. And I've tried to list for you some relevant texts from the Quran on how Islam uses this. So whereas Islam uses jihad as a way to proselytize, to spread Islam, the Bible never, ever warrants that as a reason. Quite the opposite. Biblical proselytizing cost the life of the proselytizer, not the proselyte. That is, those who die when Christianity spreads are the ones bringing the good news, not the ones being forced to submit under the sword. Third, and finally, whereas Islam makes warfare part of the general teaching of Islam, the Bible very, very rarely calls for Yahweh war. And when it does, it is a call given to a specific leader for a specific group of people for the primary purpose of bringing God's judgment. So the few times God brings Yahweh's, Yahweh war through his people, he's bringing judgment on a specific people for their deep sin. In Joshua 6 and 8, God told Abraham four centuries prior to that moment that he would bring judgment, but he wanted to make sure that the people of the land continued in their sin and rebellion without repenting. So he waited 400 years. You can see Genesis 15, I listed it there for you when he says, until the iniquities of the Amorites are full. And in our passage, God is now ready to bring judgment to the Amalekites, but again, he has given them over 400 years to continue to act in deep rebellion against God, and they still haven't repented for their sin. So only now does he bring judgment, only after 400 years of patience and no repentance. The purpose was not to convert the Amalekites, but to bring divine judgment they deserved for their sin. All right, it's a brief excursus. I know I haven't exhausted all the questions. I barely scratched the surface, but hopefully it helps us see that what happened in Israel last Saturday was vastly different from what's going on in this text. I've offered you a lot of notes in the handout. I gave you supporting uh, text from both the Quran, but also I, I've tried to list for you. I know it is long, but in the back appendix, so you could read text after text after text. Deuteronomy spends so much time explaining why what is about to happen in the conquest of Canaan is okay. Why God is okay for that. And there's just justification after justification. And I listed that for you. And finally, I would just say, if this is still hard for you as you're thinking about this, that's fine. Ask questions. Find Pastor Scott. Find me. Find Pastor Mark or Pastor Charlie. We'd be happy to discuss with you further um, about that. All right, we're going to move on to verse 4. We know the directive that's been given. It is 
a directive of judgment. So Saul has been called to carry that out. Verse 4 through 9. So Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Telaim. Sorry, Telaim. 200,000 men on foot and 2,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Canaanites, Go, depart, go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So we see mercy being shown to the Canaanites. So the Canaanites departed from among the Amalekites. And Saul defeated the Amalekites for uh, Havelah as far as Shur, uh, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all that the people, all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and the fatted calves and the lambs and all that was good and would, and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they did devote to destruction. So they move in, and you can't make this up. Just guess where Amalek was. Yeah, if you had to pick a spot, it'd be pretty much modern-day Gaza Strip. I'm telling you, you can't make this up. So they make their way down there, the people of Israel, and this is their campaign. The day finally came for God to fulfill his promises to Moses to bring judgment on the Amalekites for their barbarous treatment of God's people in Saul's disobedience. His disobedience here leaves the very integrity of God's word in the balance. This is a massive problem. God's word is the most powerful substance that exists. It makes nuclear power seem very, very light. Saul was told to destroy everything. Instead, we get to the end of verse 9, and this is how it's summarized. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. Basically, Saul just chose the parts he wanted to obey, and he disobeyed the rest. He chose his own wisdom over God's wisdom. When he first met Saul in chapter 10, we saw his lack of understanding of the things of God. We read that in our background together. The fact that he failed to see the incredibly deep, deep significance of letting the king of the Amalekites, Agag, live, given the whole point of the mission, it's astonishing. Especially when you consider that he presumably went ahead and slaughtered the rest of the people. But he let their leader live? shows his utter failure to grasp the significance of the task at hand. And you can feel this just fall in the next couple of verses. God's word has been left unfulfilled for 400, over 400 years. It sat waiting for fulfillment. The day comes and it isn't finished. It's a gasp if you're reading the text. It's a theological 
five alarm fire. In verse 10 and 11, oh, it just falls. The word, verse 10, the word of the Lord. What came? Oh, I love it. What came? The word of the Lord. It's like the word of the Lord is running around going, no, 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 no. I do not go unfulfilled. It's beautiful. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. And what did he say? I regret that I made Saul king, for he's turned his back from following me and has not performed my commandments. Ah, catch this. And Samuel was angry and he cried to the Lord all night. I believe that these two verses might actually be the lowest point of 1 Samuel, which is saying something because we've seen some low points. But recall what Saul represents. He is the king that the people wanted. And recall that when the people special ordered their king, they said, you know what we want? We just want one that's just like all the other nations. That's what we want. And that appears to be exactly what Saul represents. He represents an example of every one of us, short of miraculous divine intervention. Saul gets it together for short periods of time, but he never keeps it on the path. I believe Saul represents man with religion added on. It'll clean up some parts of us, no doubt but it can never transform our hearts and our minds. I believe Saul, Samuel gets this. He feels a despair for the people of God. He's seen his sons fail to step up and lead. Sorry, the sons of Eli fail to step up and lead as recorded in chapter 2. He has seen his own sons fail to step up and lead as recorded in chapter 8. Now Saul, the one he anointed before God and the people, has now been rejected by God. Samuel is exasperated and a bit hopeless, wondering how the people of God would ever move forward. His love for the nation and the things of God leads to a tear-filled night of prayer and disgust. And now you've got to catch this symbolism. Now Samuel represents God as he goes to face disobedient Saul. He's walking after him. This confrontation is intended to feel all too familiar to those familiar with the biblical story. Verse 12 through 14. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning. And it was told, it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself and turned and passed on and went to Gilgal. Ah, oh, so many things this text we need more time on. Go compare what Moses did in Exodus 17 to what Saul did when he's leaving there. It's disgusting. All right, verse 13. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, This is Saul coming to Samuel. Oh, blessed be, be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, what then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Saul greets Samuel as if all is great and good. 
and even willing to brag about his obedience. Again, Samuel represents God, and he represents the typical man or woman when confronted by God. One of the scariest realities all across Scripture is our inability on our own to see the deep problem of our sin. When confronted with the holiness of God, we should shudder in fear, ashamed of our thoughts, actions, and attitudes. But one of the first things we do is try to trot out, nonetheless, our misinformed obedience. Saul exclaims he has performed the commandment of Yahweh. And Samuel volleys back with one of the greatest lines in all of literature, what then is the bleeding of the sheep in my ears? I love that the Bible never misses the opportunity to show the dumbness of sheep. Sheep, if you just kept your mouth shut. I love it. Then calls us all what? You got it. Sheep. Saul is busted. Cue the excuses. Verse 15. Saul said, they have brought them from the Amalekites. For the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. And the rest we have devoted to destruction. Now the pronouns in this just tell it all. They have brought them. The people spared the best. So when, so when they did wrong, it was they, the people, right? But now he switches when they actually do something correctly, and it is what? We have devoted it to destruction. I told you earlier, this should sound very, very familiar. It's intentional. It sounds a whole lot like what? God walking into the garden in Genesis chapter 3. The people represent Eve, and Saul represents Adam. Adam is caught, and what do we get in verse 12 of Genesis 3? The man said, the woman whom you gave me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Substantial, unreasonable, blame shifting. But this should also remind us of another story, a story familiar to those who have been part of the equip hour as we have been in Exodus. In Exodus 32, the account of the golden calf, Moses confronts Aaron and listen to Aaron's ridiculous blame shifting. It's, I mean, it's tremendous. And Aaron said, let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people set on evil, verse 24. So I said to them, let any who have gold, take it off. So they gave it to me. I threw it in the fire and up, out came this calf. <laughs> Can you really make that up? So notice what's going on. The people asked for a king just like the rest of the nations and they got one who's just like the rest of the nations. They got a king who looks a lot like Adam. So the first king of Israel will not be able to lead the people back to God. This is a big deal. And it should not shock us because the other account we looked at was who? Aaron. And who was Aaron? He was none other than the very first what? Priest for the people of God. 
Do you see how the Bible goes out of its way to show that the first priest of Israel and the first king of Israel look a whole lot like our first father who? Adam. Samuel's had enough. And we get this amazing exchange. Pay attention. Verse 16 through 19. Then Samuel said to Saul, Stop. I'll tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, Speak. And Samuel said, Though you are little in your own eyes. Are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then? Did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what is evil in the sight of the Lord? Samuel reminds him of the plain, full word of the Lord and of his clear disobedience. He plainly shows him that God had told him to devote all to destruction and that he failed to do so. And then we get why Saul was okay with his disobedience. And Saul, this is verse 20, 21, and Saul said to Samuel, I've obeyed the voice of the Lord. I've gone on a mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amaleks to destruction. But the people took the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. Now we get at the heart of it. Saul was okay with not fully obeying the voice of God because he thought he had an equation with God figured out. Yes, he says destroy everything, but I'm sure if we have some oxen and sheep that we can throw on for a sacrifice, then God will see that and he'll be so happy that he'll probably forget about the rest of it. Again, we don't have time for this, but if you go back in between those two chapters of Joshua 6 and 8, it's not a hard math problem. Chapter 7, go read that and compare it to Saul's sin here, and it'll blow your mind that God allowed him to stand for a second. That's the sin of Achim. Anyway, this is what? This is so unbelievably helpful. His response is man-made religion. This is how every other religion works. God gets upset at the bad things that, that we do, and so we got to appease them with some nice religious deeds, offer the right amount of prayers, attend the right amount of church services, get baptized in the right way, give enough money to the church or the poor, then all will be well. God will finally be happy. Saul doesn't just represent our first father, Adam. He represents every man-made attempt to make appeasement with God. And Samuel nails him with his response. A couple of the most important verses in all of the Old Testament used across the Scriptures. Verse 22 and 23. Your Bible, by the way, probably sets these apart. This is how special these verses have appeared and are used across the text. Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings as sacrifices, as in obeying the voice of the Lord? 
Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen to the fat of rams. Rebellion is the sin of divination, and presumption is an iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, the Lord has rejected you from being king. We really should have a whole sermon on this, but instead we're going to have less than two minutes. First, Saul, you don't take your sin serious enough. That's exactly what he's hammering with. Not obeying God is as worse is the worst sin you can imagine. He just throws it out there. Maybe it's idolatry for you. Maybe it's divination for you, which is ironic given the way Saul's life will end. When we fail to wholly follow God, we fail in a devastating way. Children, when you fail to honor your mother and your father, you have failed in a devastating way. When any of us give in to the desires of our flesh, we have failed in a devastating way. When any of us fail to walk away when a conversation goes from or turns to gossip or envy, we have failed in a devastating way. Second, God doesn't want and God doesn't need any of our burnt offerings or sacrifices. Burnt offerings aren't for God. That's a joke. They are for sinful people. If God's people always obeyed, there would be no burnt offerings. The burnt offerings are simply a way to allow God to still be among his people when they sin. God wants obedience. He tolerates sacrifice. You say it again. It's the Old Testament model. He wants obedience. He tolerated sacrifice. Friends, hear the words of the Lord here because it takes you right to the heart of the Christian Adam. Our sin is far worse than we can imagine. And none of our efforts to resolve it will be enough to please God. Feel the weight of it. It's an unreal weight. And it primes us for the gospel. Verse 24. Saul said to Samuel, I've sinned, for I've transgressed the commandment of the Lord in your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you've rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. And Samuel turned to go away. Saul seized the skirt of his robe and it tore. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn, torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he's not a man that he should have regret. And he said, I've sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul, and Saul bowed before the Lord. Then Samuel said, verse 32, bring here to me Agag, 
the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. Agag said, surely the bitterness of death is past. And Samuel said, as your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Ramoth. And Samuel went up to his house in Gibeah of Saul. Sorry, and Saul went up to his house in Gibeah. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul. And the Lord regretted that he made Saul king over Israel. Saul's inability to see the problem of his sin and his brokenness continues to be on full display as the chapter closes out. He continues to be a picture of Adam and a poster child of man trying to get right with God on his own. It's as frustrating as it is sad. Samuel's act to end the life of Agag, it is gruesome, but it is deeply symbolic. He is finally bringing to fulfillment the word of the Lord. He puts out the five alarm fire. That's why there's all this detail over that action. The word of God will not remain unfulfilled. As the chapter closes, unbelievably, hope shines forth. In verse 28, Saul, the king like the nations, the king like our first father Adam, is told his days are over. But like so many places in the Bible, hope comes in the form of a sweet conjunction. Right where we expect the period, we get the hope of a conjunction. And Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day, period. No, no, thank God, no. And has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. God would have been just and right to have ended the sentence with the former part. Just like God would have been just and right to have kicked Adam out of the garden and left him alone forever. And just like God would have been right to abandon Aaron and the people with their golden calf. But praise do be, be to our merciful God, there is a conjunction. And he has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. This is foreshadowing David. We'll meet him in the very next chapter. But it is ultimately forecasting the son of David, Jesus Christ, our Savior. The words are perfect about the promised one. First, he's going to be a neighbor. So he's going to be like you. Close enough that he's like you. That he's your neighbor. But praise God, he's better than you. And that's the gospel. Our sin is worse than we ever want to admit. And nothing we can do can resolve it. But in the sweetest of mercies of God, He gave us a neighbor. He sent His only Son into human flesh. He looks like us. He breathes like us. Praise God, He could die like us. 
He's our neighbor. But praise God, he is better than us. He is better than us. He needs no sacrifice because he perfectly obeys. In fact, his obedience becomes his sacrifice. And so as those that follow Jesus, we are free to walk, not like our first father, Adam, or the first king, Saul, but like our Savior and ultimate King Jesus. Paul puts it like this in Colossians. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things on earth. You can just hear him saying, like all the other nations, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. We are free to let the Spirit of God grow us and show us the places in our lives where the sheep may be bleeding, where the oxen may be making their sounds. We are free to put to death all the places we have allowed the ways of the world and the flesh to live in our lives and our hearts in our minds. We are free because our neighbor, King Jesus, praise God, is better than us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. It's not always easy. I definitely have felt that this week. But Father, it's true. I don't doubt not an iota of it. It is unbelievably true. Father, it diagnoses me every time. I need a Savior. On my own, I will be just like Saul every time. But thank you for Jesus Christ. He is our hope. He is our Savior. He is the only, only answer we give to our problem of sin before you a perfect and holy God. Amen.